John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. May God give his blessing on the reading of his word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought we also ought to love one another. <clears throat> as soon as I saw her, I fell head over loves and head over heels in love with her. Today's Mother's Day, and most of us I suspect love our mothers, as I certainly did. I love you. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I love you dearly. I love my wife, and I love my enemies, or at least I try to because God has commanded me to. And by the way, I love Baskin-Robbins praline pecan ice cream. Uh, Same love, same word, over and over, but obviously very different meanings. It's an interesting thing to me, I don't want this to turn into a Greek lesson, but it's an interesting thing to me that... uh, The Greek language has four different words to express the different meanings of love that we found in those expressions that I just used with you a few moments ago. Uh, One of them is eros. Call that Hollywood love. Maybe among young, young, very young people, puppy love. That word's not in the New Testament. It does refer to a sensual love. It refers to the kind of love I first mentioned when I said I saw her and fell in love with her immediately. It has to do with physical attraction and deals primarily with physical expressions of love. It's not exactly lust. It's a better word than lust. And as a matter of fact, that kind of love, though the word's not mentioned in the New Testament, is nevertheless very much a part of the marriage relationship. The Bible tells us that because in order to... To avoid fornication, every man ought to have his own wife, and every woman ought to have her own husband. And in regard to that, neither should withhold conjugal love from one another. And very simply it says, the wife's body does not belong to the husband, but to the wife. And the husband's body does not belong to the wife, but to the husband. And within the marriage relationship, that uh, sensual love, can be a joyful love and a God-approved love, but only in that marriage relationship. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the marriage bed is undefiled. Another kind of love, most of us are familiar with it, is agape love. We could call that divine love. And very often, that's exactly the opposite of eros. One of the things about recognizing that the word eros does not appear in the Bible is that whenever you see the word love in your English Bible, eros is not what it's talking about. Uh, that word's not found 
in, in the Bible, although the idea of it, as I mentioned, uh, is especially noted. Agape love is a sacrificial love. It's the love that God had for us and caused him to sacrifice his son, John 3.16. It's a love that is willed instead of that is felt. Uh, it, it can therefore be commanded and often is in, in scripture. In Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is willed and not felt. We would not expect to see our enemy coming and have our heart go flip-flop like we would if our wife or our husband entered the door, or even as a good friend we hadn't seen for a long, long time. One of the characteristics of agape is that it doesn't require anything in the one being loved to bring about that love. Very clearly, Jesus, Paul says, the Holy Spirit has shed abroad the love of God in our hearts, for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Perhaps for a good man one might even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, God died for us. He didn't require that we be lovable, but he loved us anyway. And that love came from his nature. Because as we heard in one of the scripture readings a few minutes ago and in the songs we sang, God is love. And he loves because he is love. And not because there is something lovable in us. The Bible commands us to show agape love toward God as he has shown it toward us. We love because he first loved us, the Bible says. But as a result of his love for us, we are to return love for him. And although it doesn't result in, doesn't bring about a particular feeling, it does nevertheless require a particular response. And if we truly love in that sense, we will want to do what is best for the one being loved. That's why the Bible says if we love Jesus, we will keep his commandments. It's rather interesting to me that when the Bible commands us in one place to love our wives, this is the word that it uses. Husbands, love your wives. And then it very clearly shows what kind of love it is by continuing Love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Somebody comes to my office sometimes, more than once on occasion, begins to talk about their marriage and says, as though that sort of ended everything, I don't love her anymore. Or maybe I don't love him anymore. My immediate biblical response is, well, start doing it. <laughs> because that kind of love is not something that just naturally happens. It's not a feeling that comes. It's something that can be commanded. It's something to be willed. And I can will to do what's best for the one being loved and do it in order for their best. And by the way, sometimes having that kind of love <coughs> excuse me, and willing for the best of that person sometimes means correcting that person in love and in gentleness and in, uh, without arrogance. We'd love our neighbors. One of the things Jesus did as he went about in the New Testament was redefine, for the Jews particularly, what it meant 
to be a neighbor. In the Old Testament, the Bible talks about loving your neighbor. It also talks about loving your brother. But in the same context, it may talk about loving the stranger who is in your gates. And those stranger who's in your gates, the person who was the Jew but lived among them, was still to be treated with respect and, and, and help when needed to be helped. But the context of context, contrast of love your brother, love your neighbor, love the stranger who's in your gates, makes it obvious that to the Jews, the neighbor was your fellow Jew. Jesus worked hard to change that concept. In the Sermon on the Mount, he commanded us to love your enemies. As I mentioned earlier, that's not an, often an easy thing to do. But it's something God commands us to do. It means that we are to look out for their best interest, to will to do what will be helpful and good for them, to bring about what will be best for them in their lives. And then indeed, in the midst of that, a lawyer came to Jesus and asked the question, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus answered, you have the commandments, you're a lawyer, you tell me. And interestingly, this lawyer had caught the essence of the commandments and answered Jesus in the same words that Jesus would later use. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Jesus answered him and said, you've answered well. Go do this and you live. In another sermon, I like to talk about the fact that knowing what's right and doing what's right are frequently two different things. This man knew exactly what was right. And indeed, he answered right. <clears throat> but Jesus said, do this and you will live. And then he sort of thought maybe he didn't come across too well in that exchange. He tried to make himself look better by saying, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered with a story. <laughs> kind of interesting to me, anytime Jesus is asked a question, he frequently asks with another question. He frequently answers with another question. <clears throat> he frequently answers with a story. And that's what he did on this occasion. The story is a very familiar one to all of us. It's what we call the story of the Good Samaritan. Samaritan was the kind of person that the Jews really didn't feel like they could love. Uh, for one thing, it was a mongrel race. They'd intermarried with other peoples. And it was also a mongrel religion. <coughs> they had accepted some of the tenets of the pagan peoples with whom they had intermarried. And, then, and the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritan. That's a quote from the words of a Samaritan woman to a Jew. And generally speaking, that was, that was true. But a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jesus said. And on the way he fell among thieves. And they beat him and robbed him and left him for dead. And a little while later, he said... A priest came by. A priest, as you know, is a <coughs> functionary of religion. He's the one who, like a preacher today, would be sort of in charge of the service and do the things that lead them in the worship as they were supposed to be led. But he passed by on the other side. He paid no attention to the man in the ditch. Then Jesus said a Levite came by. <coughs> A Levite was part of the priestly group. Uh, in, in the Bible, all 
priests had to be Levites, but all Levites weren't priests. But the Levites who weren't priests presided at the temple and did other matters that were important to the priesthood and to help them do their job. And they also were a very <coughs> important part, <coughs> but very important part of the religious economy. And he came and looked at the man, but then passed by on the other side. And then Jesus came and said, a certain Samaritan it came that way. There may be some language, some words in our language that are sort of like that. But you couldn't say Samaritan without a sort of a sneer, a Samaritan. A certain Samaritan came his way. But he looked upon him and had compassion on him. It's almost understood in the story Jesus told that the man who fell among thieves was a Jew. But a Samaritan saw him. And he got off his animal, came over to him, ministered to him as best he could, poured in oil and wine. Oil had soothing qualities and wine had alcohol that helped to uh, uh, kill the germs and in, in wounds. And uh, then he dressed him as best he could. He put him on his own animal and carried him to an innkeeper and told the innkeeper to take care of him, gave him some money to care for him for a couple of days, and said, if it takes more than that, <coughs> when I come back, <coughs> I'll pay you the more that I owe you. I think it would be fair to say that the Samaritan did everything for that poor individual, if for dead, that it would be possible for a man to do for another. And then Jesus asked the lawyer, which one do you suppose was neighbor to the one who fell among thieves? Well, I think it's kind of interesting that the lawyer couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan. But he got the point, and he did say the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus came back again with the same admonition. You've answered right. Go and do likewise. That means that a Samaritan, that, that a neighbor, is anybody we come in contact who needs help. That's who we're to be neighbor to. And we'd love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We'd do as the Samaritan did, to help him in every way we know how to help him, to get him back on his feet and to get him back to his normal position before he was beaten and left for dead. We're told to, to agape our wives. That to me is a very strange thing. I know we're to have the kind of love that Eros expresses for our wives, even though the word's not used in the New Testament. We certainly would have a friendship kind of love. That'll be a word we'll mention in a few minutes toward our uh, wives. I like to think of my wife as my best friend, and I expect many of you, most of you do too, or your husband. But Jesus said, husbands, love your wives, agape your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And it's for that reason that it's not permissible for any one of us to say, I don't love her anymore. Because the Bible says we'll get at it and do what's best for her and have that will in your mind and in your heart. And agape, by the way, is the love that's defined in 1 Corinthians 13. There's another kind of love that's mentioned in Scripture and that has a word uh, that uh, is, is, expresses that kind of love. It's the word phile. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Phile 
is a word that refers to what I'd call friendship love. I've often referred to it maybe as golf buddy love. Most of us have things we like to do with others because they like to do what we won't like to do. I know some people who have golf buddies. I don't. For whatever it's worth, I've never played a round of golf in my life. Uh, but I have some eating brother, buddy loves. <laughs> and uh, eat with them quite frequently. And I know some women who have some shopping buddies and maybe even some quilting buddies. They're buddies that we like because of the mutual interest that we have, because of the things that we like to do together. And sometimes even for the, for the things that we have talents for, and oftentimes for the things that we are committed to. This kind of love is friendship. The Bible even uses the word affectionate. In Romans 12, verse 20, love one another with brotherly affection. And that's the word phile that is used. It's a word that carries forth warmth and joy. I might meet my enemy or my neighbor coming toward me, and I might not have a good feeling toward him. I'm to love him agape anyway. But when I see a friend coming toward me, I like him. It feels good to see him. I'm delighted. I may run and hug him. I may be so glad to see him that I will express it, and especially if I haven't seen him in a long, long time. Sometimes the word phile is joined to the word adolphos, which is brother, and then it's translated brotherly, love. Uh, there's a city in Philadelphia with that name, the city of brotherly love. It's a mutual love based on things that we enjoy together. Maybe interest, maybe talents, maybe commitments. <coughs> and interestingly, it's the kind of love that is frequently commanded of us with regard to our brothers and sisters. As I said a few moments ago, I love you, those of you who are here. I love you because I know you. I love you because even those I don't know very well, I know we share a commitment with one another. I know we have a common faith. I know we sit around at a common table every Lord's Day. I know that these things bring us together. I've been, and perhaps some of you have too, to conventions where I was with a group of people. For the most part, we're not members of the church. Not, and, and sometime in the course of affairs, I run into one of the people I really didn't know but I found out he was a Christian. He was a member of the Lord's Church. And immediately something happens. I have a feeling toward him that I didn't have before. And that I still don't have but with the majority of people who are there. If I see them later at a table by themselves, I'll probably go join them. <coughs> if I see them in the group sitting, I may go sit with them. I have something in common with them. It's a common faith. It's a common teaching, it's a common understanding, and a common love for the Lord. I had a fellow going around the country one time saying, doctrine divides and love divides. Doctrine divides and love unites. So let's all just love one another and forget about doctrine. That sounds good. The only thing wrong with it, it doesn't work. It isn't so. The reason we love one another is because of that common faith we share. Those common doctrines and teachings that we commonly hold in common. And the table that we sit around on the Lord's Day, again, in common. It's a mutual faith. And in 1 Peter 2, 22, 1 Peter 1, 22, obedience to the truth 
is said to be a reason for our sincere brotherly love. Another word for love in the Greek language is storge. It only appears twice in the, United, in the, in the New Testament. And both times it's, it's in the negative. It has a, we use the word in or un to make a negative out of a word, faithful, unfaithful. The Greek uses the word, uses the letter A in front of a word to do the same thing. So the word for love is storge. The way it appears in the New Testament is ah storge, without. It's, tre- it's uh, uh, translated in the New Test in the uh, King James version without natural affection, and it's translated in other versions like the ESV, which I use as heartless. <coughs> Sometimes I call it an Aunt Minnie love. Maybe there's an Aunt Minnie out there somewhere in your family that not very well known, hadn't been around the other rest of the family very much, but everybody knows she's there and everybody knows she's related. And everybody worries a little bit about her. And when they find out she's sick, they try to do something for her. And, and when they haven't heard for a while, they like to find out what's going on with her because she's family. That's storge. With that kind of love, we should show affection. We should recognize family ties even when we're not close. It's in Romans 131 and 1 Timothy 33 that the word appears. In Romans, is talking about the utter lack of righteousness and godliness in the Roman society and lists a number of things that characterize that, and one of them is astorge, without natural affection. The other one is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Timothy says, in the latter days, men shall, it goes on to say how wicked and ugly and mean and mean-spirited and doing all kinds of wicked things that, again, would characterize the society. (coughs) And, again, refers to those who are without natural affection. It seems to me that there would be a very natural affection, very natural family ties between a woman and the baby in her womb. And abortion, it seems to me, is a particular violation of storge. It's ostorge. It's without natural affection. I hear all the time about parental child abuse. Parents harming their children. There was something in the paper a couple of months ago about a mother who brought a child to the courts and he had nine broken bones, a very small baby. Many other stories are told about that. That does make me shudder. I can't even imagine somebody with a little child who normally we would love and care for and tenderly help. Maybe the, most, the worst thing we might do about it would be to not discipline when, we, when he needs it, but surely not to abuse him. And by the way, somebody said one time, there's a narrow line between corporal punishment for discipline and child abuse. That's not true. There's a vast chasm between proper parental punishment and child abuse that leaves a child harmed and hurt and uh, bruised. And it's just unbelievable to me how parents could do that, but it is without natural affection. And again, we also hear quite frequently of children or grandchildren uh, abusing an aged parent or grandparent, stealing money from them, 
actually beating them when they don't do what they ought to do. I just saw a thing in the paper the other day. I'm just reminded uh, a, a parent nearly beat a baby to death because he wouldn't stop crying. How in the world do you make a child stop crying by beating him more? But it's without natural affection. No family ties. No feeling of, 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 of obligation toward a family member. Simply looking out for oneself and for one's own selfish interest at the expense of someone who, because their family, ought to be loved. That's storge. And we ought not to be without natural affection. Let me suggest in conclusion that we honor our family members. If we have a child or a grandchild or a nephew or a niece and baby that we're taking care of, love them tenderly, care for them in every way that we can, make them mind in some way, but never hurt them, never harm them in any permanent way or lasting way. Love your aunts and uncles and cousins that are far away, and when you hear of some need that they have, care for them. Paul told Timothy, if a man will not provide for his own, and especially those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. We need storge, family, love. We need filet for our brothers and sisters. When I see you, I love you and glad to see you. And we often greet one another very quickly and very gladly. And depending on how well we know each other, uh, maybe more affectionately than others, the Bible talks about a holy kiss. We don't do that so very much, but most of us do a holy hug fairly frequently. And it's a good thing if indeed it's holy. And that's what the Bible is talking about. It ought to be. We seek out the company of our brothers and sisters because we love them, because of what we share together, because of the common love we have based on our common faith. When agape comes along, we will and do what is best for the one involved. It starts by loving God because he has agaped us. And we love him as he loved us. And we love him because he loved us. That passage we referred to a few moments ago in which the Holy Spirit has shed abroad in our hearts the love of God indicates that when we become Christians and receive the love of God that comes out of him because he is love, that we have within us the same kind of basis so that we too become love. And the love that we share for others is not because they're lovable any more than the love God had for us is because we were lovable. But it's the love that God has put in us by our, his love for us. And then we become love and we share out of our own harvest of love, love for others as we see that they have need. And often, as I've indicated, what is best may be correction. <coughs> but if it's correction, if it's correction, it's tender correction with gentleness, uh, with no arrogance, with no feeling that we would never need correction ourselves, but always with a desire to help them and not to hurt them. That's agape. Eros. Keep it in bounds. And that means within the marriage relationship. Sensual love 
love for our wives, love for our husbands, uh, love that involves physical attraction and, and, and physical contact. It's important to the marriage relationship. It's the way that God has given us to meet the sexual needs that he put in each of us. That's what he says when he says to avoid fornication, that each one of you have his own husband and each wife have, or at least husband have his own wife. It's important because that's a very strong urge. And it's important that God has given us a legitimate way to fulfill that urge. And that's why marriage is what it is. It's why it has the exclusive nature that it has and why, therefore, we ought to love our husbands and love our wives in that way and no one else in that way as long as we both shall live. And then marriage, it should be given happily and I would nearly say without restraint when it's husbands and wives loving one another with arrows. When John the Apostle came to a church, according to a legend, every time he came, when he was very ancient and very old, he simply said to them, my little children, love one another. I leave you tonight with that admonition. If you need to respond to God's invitation, we invite you to do that while we stand, while we sing.